was there any foods that when you got here that you just didn't understand or didn't like? A lot of salad. Because Chinese don't eat raw vegetables. So sitting there eating raw vegetables, and it's a little strange. This is my mom, Tina Irway. She's at my apartment in Brooklyn, and we're cooking together. My producer, Matt's here, too. Oh, you know what we have to do first? We're making wontons with pork and shiitake mushrooms, sautéed water spinach, and a stir-fry of slivered pork, dofugan, or dry tofu, and Chinese celery. When I first came to this country, I was like, are you kidding me? This is like steroids, celery. It's so huge and humongous and no taste. You mean but the this American is the American celery. Asian celery is fragrant. It's really tasty. And that, that's what I'm used to when I was growing up. My mom grew up in Taiwan, but she also considers herself Chinese. She met my dad, an American, in Taiwan. And they got married and she moved to the States with him, eventually ending up in New Jersey, which is where I grew up. Did you ever have chop suey when you moved here? Oh my God, that is, I'm telling you, that's not Chinese food. Chop suey. And when grandma opens up a can and dump it. Grandma Irway? Grandma Irway. Grandma and Grandpa Irway are my dad's parents. They're from Elmira, New York, and they're white. And their idea of Chinese food was pretty different from my mom's. When my mom and dad visited his parents in Elmira, she encountered Chinese-American takeout for the first time, and dishes like sweet and sour pork. And it was like the orangey color, and they put chopped up maybe pineapples in there or something like that. It's very strange. Did they ask you, oh, Tina, did you grow up eating this? Um, they assume I grew up eating it. But did you ever tell them? in the Chinese restaurant. How could it be not? So did you tell them actually no? I didn't say anything. <laughs> What's the point? It's American, it's a free country. You can order anything you want. I'm Kathy Array, and this is Why We Eat What We Eat. Maybe you've never eaten Persian food, or Thai food, or Haitian food, but chances are you've eaten Chinese food. In the U.S. today, there are something like 40,000 Chinese restaurants. That's more than McDonald's, KFC, Burger King, and Wendy's combined. Today on our show, we're going to talk about the evolution of Chinese food in America. And we're going to tell the story of how the Chinese restaurant became such a big deal in this country. One of the most ubiquitous Chinese foods on American Chinese menus is General Cho's chicken. It's battered, fried, boneless chicken chunks in a sweet, sticky, orangey-brown sauce. It doesn't exist in China. And neither does... Duck sauce? Mm-hmm. What is duck sauce? If you don't recognize it by name, you may recognize it by sight. It's that little packet of clear orange gel that arrives with your Chinese takeout. It's usually made from apricots, sugar, and vinegar. You can see the ingredients right there on the packet. And it's mostly found east of the Mississippi. Uh, duck sauce? Actually, we don't have duck sauce. Brian Wong is a co-owner of Tong Fong Lo, one of the oldest continually operating Chinese restaurants in Northern California. 
They opened in 1912. Brian's family took over the restaurant in the 80s. And though he no longer serves duck sauce, or even duck for that matter... Peking duck is still very popular in, in Chinatown, but the demand here in this region, uh, when we offered it, it was not high. Peking duck has a crackly skin that's savory and rich. A bit of sweetness from hoisin sauce is a great compliment. But duck sauce is a purely Chinese-American innovation. It was used as a substitute for the hoisin sauce traditionally served with Peking duck. We used to serve it when we first opened up, but the demand was so low that we threw so many ducks away that we just figured it was a bad idea. What he does serve are American Chinese food's greatest hits. Egg rolls, orange chicken, and three kinds of chop suey. We've tried different foods that we used to um, have, like, you know, that are more catered towards people like in Asia that would enjoy. It didn't go well over here. For us in this region, the way that we prefer our food is the way we have it here. We've had a young man come in here one time, and he was Asian. And so he was like so proud to point out that, oh no, this is not authentic Chinese food. The stuff that we have over in China is way different than this. But it suits our customers perfectly. And at the end of the day, when the customer is leaving your restaurant, there's only one thing that matters, that they're happy and they're going to come back. Restaurants stay in business by adapting to the changing tastes and demands of their customers. It can be a slow and gradual evolution, but it's an evolution. And that's exactly what happened with Chinese food in America. And it all started with Chinese immigrants in the 1800s. They were mostly laborers and almost all men. The Chinese immigrants and the men that came to America were not trained chefs. I mean, they were just like dudes, right? They were looking to make a living for their family. This is Jennifer Eight Lee. She's the author of The Fortune Cookie Chronicles and the producer of a documentary called The Search for General Cho. Like my mom, her parents are immigrants from Taiwan. And Jenny is obsessed with how Chinese food spread around the globe. They had come from a region of um, China in the Guangdong province around the area of Taishan, which essentially had been completely ravaged um, in the 1800s. There was famine, there was floods, there was war. Guangdong, this area that many of the immigrants came from, is also known as Canton. And those saucy Cantonese food traditions would become the rough blueprint for American Chinese food. But like Jenny is saying, these men didn't come to America to cook. They actually didn't work in restaurants, so they had jobs in normal industries. It would be railroads and agriculture and um, mining and factories. Now, the main problem was that these were the same jobs that the Americans wanted. So you had a huge labor backlash um, against sort of this cheap pool of employees that were flooding in from over the Pacific. And as a result, you know, you had severe violence. Violence, like the Rock Springs Massacre. In 1885 in Wyoming, tensions ran high between white and Chinese coal miners. Union Pacific was hiring cheaper Chinese immigrants over more expensive white workers. And it exploded into a riot that left at least 28 Chinese miners dead. That riot set off other attacks against Chinese workers throughout the U.S. 
So as a result, the Chinese actually fled into two areas and started opening businesses. The two main ones were laundries and the other one was restaurants. And so what's interesting about those is one is cleaning and the other one is cooking. And these are both considered women's work and thus not threatening to the American male. Laws were passed that made it all but impossible for Chinese immigrants to enter the United States. The anti-Chinese labor movement and then broader you know, anti-Chinese immigration thrust ended up with the Chinese Exclusion Act that rolled into place between 1882 to 1902, which was the first time in American history that the concept of illegal immigration was introduced. The Chinese Exclusion Act started in 1882. It was modified over the following decades, but it wasn't repealed until World War II. But that didn't completely stop people from getting in. During Chinese exclusion, a Chinese person could legally immigrate to the United States if a business owner with a special merchant visa went to China and brought them back. But only certain types of businesses even qualified for this program. Then in 1915, restaurants were added to the list. And Chinese immigrants may have been forced out of other industries, but they did own restaurants. So if you own a restaurant, you could bring people over from China to work for you. The number of Chinese restaurants exploded. The Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943. But by then, Chinese food had become American Chinese food. And one dish that was undeniably part of that Chinese-American tapestry was chop suey. Again, Jennifer ate Lee. Chop suey is the biggest culinary joke that one culture has played on another because it is in Chinese Mandarin zha sui, which translated back essentially means odds and ends. Chop suey was essentially a stir fry using scraps, a few vegetables, a little bit of meat, all cooked quickly in a wok. There's some disagreement and some mythology about exactly where it first started. But Jenny says that chop suey emerged as a dish in America in the 1890s. It was cheap, it was simple, and back then, it was many Americans' only exposure to any sort of Chinese cooking. For about 20 or 30 years, Americans actually believed that chop suey was the national dish of China. And, you know, it was a dish where people thought you would be sophisticated and, and cosmopolitan if you took a, a woman out for a night of chop suey. And there were, you know, paintings and songs around it. And it wasn't until about the 1920s or 1930s where you have a bunch of Americans traveling to China looking for chop suey and are completely befuddled when they can't find it. And you have all these articles, you know, coming out, chop suey, not the national dish of China. So it's as though someone came to America and came around asking for like a national dish of ours called leftovers. And, you know, they hear it's really popular, especially after that holiday called Thanksgiving. Duck sauce, chop suey, and of course the fortune cookie, most likely originally from Japan. All of these things have been a part of our idea of Chinese food in America for so many years that they started to become sort of authentic. You know, you can't really define authenticity because authenticity changes over time. Kian Lam Ko is a Chinese-American cook, food blogger, and the author of the cookbook Phoenix Claws and Jade Trees. Kian doesn't think there's anything that unusual about all the changes and adaptations that early Chinese-American cooks brought to the cuisine. These immigrants, they came into um, the U.S. and they brought the technique with them and then they um, adapted to the local 
tastes and preferences and ingredients. There is nothing wrong with Americanized Chinese food because it is rooted in the traditional Chinese cooking. You know, you are serving an audience who will appreciate what you make, and if this is what you need to do to make it, um, you know, palatable, I I don't see anything wrong with that. Yan's mission is to educate home cooks in the methods of Chinese cooking. He thinks a lot of home cooks are intimidated by Chinese stir fries and braising. And that's a big reason why Americans are so comfortable eating their Chinese food from a takeout container. There are lots of people that say that when you use a wok, you can only use a round bottom wok because that's the most authentic. This is Grace Young. She's the author of three Chinese cookbooks, the daughter of Cantonese immigrants, and a self-described wok evangelist. She was inspired to write her first cookbook, The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen, in order to catalog and preserve family recipes that might not have otherwise been passed on. When a stir-fry is correctly prepared, it possesses what the Cantonese call wok hay. We all know what wok is, and hay in Cantonese is the same as chi in Mandarin, so it means life force. And so when a stir-fry has been properly prepared, and that means you start with super fresh ingredients, you're using very high heat, and you're cooking very quickly, that combination of super seasonal fresh ingredients um, and the heat and quickness actually um, creates this seared aroma and concentrated flavor, which the Cantonese describe as wok hay. It's the life force of the stir fry. Grace lives in a busy corner of New York's Soho neighborhood, just a short walk away from Chinatown. And when you get into her apartment, you can't help but notice all the walks. In the kitchen alone, there are walks on the countertop, on the stove, and in the cabinets. I'm a walk collector. I think I have the largest collection of walks. So this is a small glimpse into my walk collection. The bottom walk here is a cast iron walk. Grace has a lot of walks. She won't even disclose how many. Because I don't want my husband to know. This is my little habit. I'm a walkaholic, and so I don't want officially the number to be out there. This one is my traveling walk. He's a little bit lighter in weight. And over here I have four others. Here's my seasoned. Grace says that walks evolved like this in China for a reason. A round bottom wok was intended to be used on a hearth stove. And what is a hearth stove? A hearth stove is a stove that has a hole, and you place the wok in that hole so it's completely secure, so it's not going to wobble. And then you feed the stove with either dried rice stalks, dried grass, twigs, wood. It's one of the most efficient little ovens. It only takes a second, and that wok is super hot. The average residential range is not as powerful. And so for the home cook in the U.S., without a massive flame on your wok, you're just not going to achieve the same results that you'll get when you eat a stir-fry from a Chinese restaurant that cooked your food on a stovetop specially designed for wok cooking. So many people these days have induction, ceramic glass top. So round bottom cannot work on that at all. And even on a gas stove, in order for a round bottom wok to work and be safe, you have to put it on a wok ring. And so your wok is never going to get hot enough. 
Her suggestion? The flat-bottomed wok. It gets about five inches of direct contact with your stovetop, allowing it to get nice and hot while giving you a large surface area to stir-fry in. It's a Chinese-American adaptation, and Grace says it's a perfectly elegant solution. But I have it on good authority that you don't have to be fussy about equipment. I don't even have a wok. I know. That authority is my mom, Tina. Don't you think that's important? No? Obviously not. Whatever. You say flat pan. I think it started out with, I had an electric stove. There is no way you can use electric stove with a wok. So I just get used to it. You improvise. Very seldom I use cookbooks like that. Make Chinese, but I just go buy whatever. Whatever's in the fridge. And then you take it out and you use it however you want. There is no one authentic Chinese cuisine because it's traveled to so many places and it's evolving all the time. I'm making kwantan. It's a square. It's a square. And then I do it this way, Kathy. I know how to do it. Chinese food in America and Chinese food in China have evolved in different ways, by different cooks, with different needs, at different times. But even though they may look like two totally different cuisines, there's something that ties them together. The spirit of innovation, improvisation, and a few common techniques. I put a little scoop of the filling. Too much. I know. Half. All right, fine. This is not... I put a too big scoop, apparently, of filling. Um, Half. And if my oversized wontons are any evidence, it's still evolving right here. Why We Eat What We Eat is a podcast from Blue Apron and Gimlet Creative. This episode was produced by Matt Schultz, Francis Harlow, Jorge Estrada, Rachel Ward, Julia Botero, and Abby Ruzica. Production assistance from Tom Cody. Creative direction from Nazanin Rafsanjani. We were edited by Wendy Dorr and mixed by Katherine Anderson and Zach Schmidt. Special thanks to Louisa Louie. Coming up next week, we sent producers around the country to capture American meals over the course of a single weekend. From dinner with a legendary mountain climber in the desert of Utah to jambalaya chefs swapping recipes in Cajun country. Making a jambalaya, it's, it's a dying art. There's a lot of people that uh, they cook their rice separate and they want to call it a jambalaya and all it really is is rice and gravy. That's coming up next week in the season finale of Why We Eat What We Eat. In the meantime, what's your go-to stir fry? Do you make Chinese food at home? Let us know and share your photos using the hashtag Why We Eat. You can subscribe to Why We Eat What We Eat on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. I'm Kathy Airway. Thanks for listening. <laughs>